For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. I'm your host today, Leah Littman, and I am delighted, super delighted, to be here today with Ahilan Arulanthanam, a professor from practice and faculty co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. Welcome to the show, Ahilan. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. I have had the great pleasure of working with Ahilan on a previous case where I had the opportunity to moot him and also witness kind of the development of the case as it proceeded. And I can say with no exaggeration um, that Ahilan is one of the best advocates, both in his ability to kind of capture the humanity of a case, as well as all of the complex legal intricacies that go into Supreme Court cases. Um, So we are just super excited that he was able to join us today. Thanks. That's very kind of you. I'm not sure that's true, but uh, (laughs) it's a real compliment coming from you. I really appreciate it. I said it on the podcast, so that necessarily (laughs) makes it true. (laughs) Um, So Ahilan recently argued the Supreme Court case we mentioned briefly on our last episode, FBI versus Fasaga, for the plaintiff's respondents in the case. And because the court is hearing so many major important cases this term, we're doing another special separate episode on this case to make sure we have time to cover it. Thank you so much to our Glow subscribers for making these additional shows possible. If you'd like to sign up to support the podcast, you can do so at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. So let's get started. We briefly described the facts of the case on the last episode, but maybe you could provide us with a refresher of the FBI operation, Operation Flex, that gave rise to this case. Sure. Um, so you know, the FBI was engaged in just a huge amount of surveillance of Muslim communities really all throughout the country uh, in the years after 9-11. And to be honest, I'm not sure that's actually ever stopped. You know, a lot of the underlying practices have become very much normalized uh, since 2001. And there's a history of this kind of surveillance uh, going back at least to like Nation of Islam and uh, Iranian students and, you know, after 1980 and things like that. Uh, but it got very, very intense after in the years after 9-11. Um, you know, this particular uh, episode came, I mean, we learned about it in 2006 and 2007, uh, but really it was definitely happening in the period even before that. And there was a lot of reason to believe that the FBI was engaged in a lot of surveillance of the Southern California Muslim communities. It's about 500,000 people back then. I actually haven't seen a recent number. You know, this large, very diverse set of communities all throughout the Southern California area. And a lot of people were getting very early morning visits from the FBI doing interrogations of people in their homes people being stopped in the airports and interrogated, you know, when coming off the plane, of course, the no-fly list, people having bank accounts suspended, all kinds of things. 
And so we had reason to think that there was really dragnet surveillance happening in the Muslim communities. We did a FOIA request and learned information about it that way, you know, other kinds of information gathering. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really tough to find a lot of details about what's happening about FBI programs that are conducted in the name of national security, right? Um, but it, it so happens there was enough concern that there was an outcry and the FBI actually ran a public meeting. They held a town hall meeting and they said very publicly to a bunch of concerned community organizations, one thing we will not do, we will not send informants into mosques. We're not just going to send informants to just go kind of, you know, just generally and do it in the sacred space of a mosque. And that was a lie. Uh, you know, and just a few weeks after that, what we learned later was that they sent this uh, particular informant into a mosque posing as a person who had just wanted to convert and go back to his like North African roots or something like that. And he publicly converted in front of like a thousand people at the Islamic Center of Irvine. It's a huge um, mosque in, you know, in Orange County. Um, and after that, he went around um, something like eight to 10 mosques visiting people, you know, all the time. It was his full-time job. He was paid tens of thousands of dollars, more than a hundred thousand dollars actually, for about 14 months going around uh, gathering lots of phone numbers, email addresses. Uh, what he, he said is that he, the FBI told him just to gather information simply on Muslims, focus of anything on leaders, focus on people who are more devout, and that he recorded everything, uh, hundreds of hours of audio and video recordings. He had like a little secret video camera in his um, shirt lapel. He had a recording device in his keys. Um, so he did this for a long time. Didn't find any violence, didn't find anybody trying to, you know, blow up anything. Then he tried to incite it himself. First, people tried to kind of tamp him down. He kept doing it. They got scared. They reported him to the FBI. <laughs> you know, like, you I can't know, make this. This is one of the most bizarre facts of this case is the FBI informant is reported to the FBI. Yeah. I mean, you, you just can't make this stuff up, right? It's such an incredible, you know, and also eventually because he, he persisted, you know, because I mean, to some extent, this is like how informants are like, you're only right. useful, right? If you can actually get information. So, you know, if you can't, you kind of have to make it because uh, otherwise you're not going to get paid anymore. Um, and so then they actually got a restraining order against him at Islamic Center of Irvine. Then he was sort of useless, I think, uh, at that point. Uh, the relationship ended. It, it soured first with the FBI. It ended. Um, there was one case that came out of it, a, a denaturalization fraud case um, that the government dismissed on its own motion. Uh, in the bail hearing of that, they revealed, made some statements which made clear that he was who, um, you know, who people suspected him to be. Um, and that and that's sort of the kind of story of the informant himself. Okay. So now maybe we can get to the case growing out of this. Um, so who are the plaintiffs that, you know, filed suit challenging this as unlawful surveillance? And what legal claims did they raise in the case? There's three men, um, all who had pretty extensive interactions with this informant in Southern California. And I should say that there were lots and lots of people who knew him. We tried to get um, other people to sue, and people were really scared, really yeah. scared to sue the FBI. in this, By the time the lawsuit was being developed, it was like 2010-ish. Um, but the three people who sued, Yasser Fazaga... Uh, was the imam, so you know, that's the leader of the uh, a mosque in Mission Viejo, a little bit south of uh, Irvine. Um, 
He's also a licensed therapist, very successful, prominent leader. Actually, he'd been flown by the State Department to speak on the U.S.'s behalf about Islam in um, Europe, actually. So he had had a lot of interaction with uh, this informant, a lot with his congregants and some with him directly. And one of the things that the informant had said was that they had overheard uh, spied on conversations that were private that he was having in his office with congregants. Um, Another guy is this guy, Ali Malik, a second plaintiff, uh, born and raised Orange County, uh, young Republican, surfer. He, in his young, sort of, you know, early 20s, he was just post-college, had become more devout. He was wearing um, a beard. He was trying to get to early morning and late evening prayer. And this was suspicious. So, you know, they were like, focus on the converts and focus on the people who appear more devout. They're coming to it. And so Monte kind of went on to him. Craig Monte is the name of the informant. Yeah. You know, went on to him and tried to get all this information about him. The third one is this uh, person, Yasser Abdurrahim. He's an Egyptian immigrant, just finishing grad school, living in a house with other immigrants. And as he describes it anyway, they just played a lot of video games, you know, occasionally talk politics. There's like nothing particularly interesting about him. But because it was a group house and like one was an engineer and one was, a, I can't remember, one was an accountant and one was something else. They were like, it's a cell. It's a sleeper cell. They all have different skills and that's how it's going to work. And so go look at him. And then when he went into his Have they house, heard of frat houses? <laughs> right, like, exactly. Those sound like cells. <laughs> exactly. And, that's what, and, and the way he describes it, he's like, we just sat around and we played FIFA all the time. That's what we did, you know? Um, and um, he's at, funnily enough, he's now, uh, he worked for Nintendo for a long time and now he runs his own like gaming company. That's like, so that's he, really was, he really was that guy, you know? Um, and then he would lead the other housemates in prayer when they did it. I think because he was like the oldest, I think. Um, and so he was, he must've been the most important person or whatever. So these are the three people who had the courage to sue amongst a, a set of other people that obviously I can't tell you about. And the three of them had very specific interactions with him, reasons to believe that conversations of theirs that were recorded, including some where the informant was not present. So mm -hmm. there were conversations to which he was not a party, which for your listeners who know the fourth amendment law, I know that's kind of obviously an issue, but the, but the underlying big issue is they were just targeted because of their religion. And so that's, that's why that part of the case was there. Yeah. Um, so there are both unlawful search as well as religious discrimination claims in the case. And this will become important once we you know, discuss kind of what is happening at the Supreme Court. Um, but I did just want to pause uh, for a beat on the harm to the plaintiffs in the case, because the complaint as well as the briefs in the case mention, you know, the specific harm to the individual plaintiffs, you know, who became concerned about their ability to be publicly observant um, and to engage with members of the Muslim community. Um, but I think this case also raises questions questions about harms to a broader religious community that are worth thinking about, that is, in addition to or above and beyond the harm to individual members who are being or were being surveilled, you know, there is also a harm to the community itself that is not only the members who were surveilled, but the members of the community who know other members of the community are being targeted because of their religion. And for those who are interested in these kind of group harms or how, you know, particular groups or communities become policed, um, I wanted to 
do some recommended reading and suggest people check out uh, Monica Bell's work on a theory that she calls legal estrangement, which is how a particular community can feel violated by the state and by policing because other members of their community are over-policed or surveilled, as well as Amna Akbar's work, um, uh, which is titled National Security's Broken Windows. Um, So I just think this case is a prime example about how those kinds of community harms and, and group harms come to be. So one thing that I just think is notable here is when was this case filed and you know how long have the plaintiffs been seeking this information about why they were surveilled and seeking to have any surveillance of them destroyed? 2011, <laughs> that's when the case was filed. And uh, the underlying FOIA litigation started before that. That was before we knew about the informant. But, you know, right. when this community was trying to learn about these things dates, I don't know, 2006, 2007, because uh, this community meeting I'm talking about was in 2006 that I mentioned at the outset. This has been going on a long time. And one of the things that was sort of bizarre um, in the Supreme Court, the government argued uh, you know, dismissed. The, I don't want to get too much ahead of ourselves, but the government won in the district court on a motion to dismiss, which is the right. first thing that happens in a case. Yep. And, and there was a lot of discussion in the Supreme Court about how maybe this is all premature. And it's just sort of funny, right? It's premature. We've been doing this for a decade and, you know, we, we got off the bus too early, apparently. It's very, very strange. But that's that's also the history of this, the national security litigation in particular on so many of the human rights abuses that came out of 9-11. So many cases took years and years. I mean, think about Guantanamo Bay, all these people who haven't been to trial and they've been there for 20 years. And it's, it's very much, I think, the same kind of phenomena in a lot of national security litigation. The NSA mass surveillance programs that Edward Snowden revealed, most of them never got anywhere near the merits, never got even approaching summary judgment. It was all procedural wrangling about standing and state secrets and these other doctrines that prevented any any anything like accountability in the courts from even getting you know, even to this stage. So the case is filed in 2011. I guess you kind of already alluded to this, but what happened in the courts below, like in the district court, courts of appeal, et cetera? So the government immediately moved to dismiss on the ground that it was um, on state secrets. And um, I think it's worth noting there was a, a lot of outcry over the Bush administration's use of state secrets yeah. to shut down cases involving the torture program and uh, the uh, mass wiretapping program I mentioned earlier. And then when Obama came to power in 2008, they uh, did a reform and they said, look, we're not going to start state secrets without having a com- like a little internal DOJ working group decide how to approach it. We're not going to do it to cover up abuses. And this was one of the very first assertions that came out after that. And so interestingly, they didn't say the whole case has to be dismissed on state secrets, but they said all of the religious discrimination claims, and the distinction you had drawn earlier, um, they said all of those have to be dismissed. Uh, But they said the search claims, we're not sure. Maybe they'll have to be dismissed, but we're not going to say that now. Um, The Attorney General, Attorney General Holder, filed a declaration saying essentially, uh, I mean, between that and, and the, the memo, the, their argument it was basically, you know, you say this is because of religion. We assure you we do not surveil people solely because of their religion. That's solely because of their religion. Um, but to say anything else more to explain what we actually were doing here would require disclosing the reasons that we target certain people, the people who we targeted uh, and certain aspects of the sources and methods that we use. And that would require the disclosure of secret information. And so therefore, all of the religion claims have to be dismissed. 
um, was obviously the, the heart of what, um, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's bad if you leave a recording device and walk away. That's a terrible, yes. you know, you shouldn't do that. That violates the Fourth Amendment. But the reason why the community cares about this is not because of this technical, albeit important, privacy problem. It's because they're targeted because of their religion, right? That's right. that's what this is about. Um, and so they was really trying to gut the heart of the case through that. I just want to pause right here because... So the government has asked the court to dismiss the religious discrimination claims entirely on the basis of the state secrets privilege. And because I am a glutton for punishment, um, I recently went back and listened to the oral arguments in Hobby Lobby versus Burwell just to prepare for another religious liberty case that the court is hearing. Um, and I just wanted to in response to the government's argument that it gets to dismiss claims of religious discrimination and make them disappear entirely, wanted to play a clip from none other than Samuel Alito in the Hobby Lobby argument. So let's play that clip here. If you say they can't even get their they even can't even get their their day in court, you're saying something pretty pretty strong. I take it that Sam Alito is going to have a lot of concerns about dismissing religious discrimination claims on the basis of state secrets based on that statement. So anyways, Ahilan, you were saying. <laughs> so the district court uh, dismissed all the religion claims and actually also almost all the search claims left only our claim under FISA Section 1810. Traditionally, it's the government that has to assert the state secrets privilege. They're the ones who hold it. And so this was quite unusual. We looked and looked and couldn't find us like I think we couldn't find a single case or maybe one other case where any had done anything like this had never been upheld. Um, so then, then uh, actually both sides appealed. They appealed the fact that we survived our, our that our um, FISA claim. That's a claim for damages against the officers for the privacy violations essentially. Um, for for any it has to be warrantless surveillance in order for it to be actionable under um, FISA Section eighteen ten. They appealed that. We appealed all the rest of it. And the Ninth Circuit said, um, first of all, it's not right to dismiss claims for over which the government has not asserted the privilege, so your search claims can go forward. So that was good. At least there's some part of the case. And as far as I could tell, that was not before the Supreme Court, and they didn't argue it. So I think that yeah. the case is going to go forward, at least on those privacy issues we talked about earlier, no matter what else happens. Um, but then on the religion claims, the, the court said, uh, we think FISA which is a statute enacted for the purpose of both regulating the government's domestic electronic surveillance on what are called U.S. persons, which is American citizens and green card holders, and also for providing remedies when there are violations of the law governing electronic surveillance under this very detailed statute that was passed in 1978 in the wake of a lot of abusive domestic surveillance, including by the FBI on Martin Luther King and on Vietnam War protesters and on black churches and the civil rights movement on the Nation of Islam and then Nixon uh, spying on his political opponents. Uh, you know, then they passed the statute that that really reformed this area in a significant way. You know, and uh, the Ninth Circuit said this statute actually displaces the state secrets privilege in cases involving electronic surveillance of Americans on U.S. soil. Uh, and what it requires is that it's very similar to state secrets privilege in a lot of ways because um, it still doesn't allow the opposing party really to almost ever um, see any of the underlying information. So if there are good reasons for what they did here, despite all appearances of what happened in this case, I'm not sure we would ever know about it, even if we won any of the details. But what it says is, 
the under FISA, the actual information, the actual documents that the government says justify its conduct have to be given to the court, ex parte and in camera, and then the court looks at that and decides if the surveillance was lawfully authorized or conducted. Uh, and so what they said was, look, there's these other questions about whether the district court should have actually applied state secrets privilege here, or was it too early? Because you know we said, we don't care what their evidence says. We will prove our case because we know so much about, because we have the informants declarations and we have all this other information. So you know we had made th- those kinds of arguments that state secrets privilege doesn't apply here. We had said something similar to your quote of, or your uh, tape of Justice Alito earlier. We said, you can't apply it to constitutional claims to dismiss these claims that might be meritorious when you could, that would have the effect of allowing the government to just blatantly break the law and then hide under the national security um, sort of shield of the state secrets privilege. And the Ninth Circuit said, we don't need to decide all that. We think FISA sets forth the procedures here. The district court does get to look at everything without you seeing anything, you, the plaintiff, seeing everything. But the district court should decide whether the government broke the law, not just is this all secret and therefore your case has to be dismissed. So that was the holding of the decision below. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school. You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend. The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free.
Okay, so now the case is at the Supreme Court, and it felt like from argument there were really two issues that were on the justices' minds. You know, one issue is kind of what we've already alluded to, which is whether the state secrets privilege justifies the dismissal of claims rather than prohibiting the introduction of certain evidence. Um, so here it seemed like at least one justice, Justice Breyer, was very convinced by this amicus brief um, by Professor Laura Donahue of Georgetown Law. Uh, it got a shout out. So let's play that clip here. I read uh, Professor Donahue's brief from Georgetown. And so that's very much in my mind. I thought it was a good brief. And I think she seems to know what she's talking about. I certainly does. So I'm thinking, look, the thing is that you don't want the case dismissed. Of course. And Totten doesn't apply. And so they shouldn't have had anything to do with that. They should just look at Reynolds. That's right, Your Honor. All right. Now, give, that's what they seems to be the issue and the problem. So do you really care uh, whether uh, the government's right or wrong on the displacement of the state secrets doctrine by 1806 or whatever? Suppose we said, no, it doesn't. But it doesn't matter that it doesn't. Because, of course, as quoting the government, the judges will look at this information, and if the information it doesn't solve the problem, simply to say, we don't want the information, namely you. Of course you don't. But the government says, judge, look at this. You will see that we both can't introduce the information because it's just too secret. It's unbelievable harm if we do. And it proves beyond any doubt their case is wrong. The brief argues that the dismissal of claims wasn't part of the common law privilege um, and has been rarely part of FISA proceedings as well. Um, and then the second question seemed to be about whether the common law privilege of state secrets has been superseded by the provisions of the statute as you were laying out, you know, that the Ninth Circuit um, kind of concluded. And embedded in that question were, one, whether the government is trying to use surveillance information when it is seeking to dismiss a case on the basis of surveillance information collected, um, or when it says we would want to defend ourselves on the basis of this information, which we refuse to introduce, um, and then second, whether those statutory procedures or provisions supersede or displace the rules regarding the common law privilege. Um, so both of those questions seem to be, you know, on the court's mind. Um, although some of the justices, like, weren't sure the first question was really part of the case, I don't see how it couldn't be part of the case, given that that was the district court's disposition of the claim. And the Ninth Circuit, you know, ostensibly said, well, you can't dismiss a claim, at least where the government didn't ask for it on the basis of the privilege. So that's definitely part of both the district court's decision and the court of appeals decision. Like you can slightly alter the remand order to the district court, right, if you think that is the right way to resolve the case. Um, but like that, that's definitely part of the district court's judgment. I agree with everything you've said, Justice Lippman. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> no, say but... it on the podcast, that makes it true. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to tell you, I was scratching my head over that, what you just said. It was the disposition of the, of the court below. So how, how can that not be in the in the question presented, and also the way the question was written, they granted the government's question, uh, right. 
is does FISA displace the state secrets privilege um, or, you know, then their account of what the Ninth Circuit, uh, you know, sort of wanted. So when you say displace the state secrets privilege, you have to, well, what does the state secrets What's privilege exactly? do? Right? What, is, right. what, is it, what does it do? Um, and if you're saying it displaces the state secrets privilege and therefore they should have affirmed the decision, the, the district court decision, well, then you're saying that dismissal is okay, right? So yeah, I found that odd. And there's also this procedural point. We said in the brief in opposition right. uh, that we were going to argue that there is no dismissal on the state secrets privilege because there were all these, I, I told you, there was all these torture cases and NSA cases. They were close. Some of them, the on-bank Ninth Circuit decision upholding state secrets dismissal of the torture claim was six to five on-bank. This case, uh, Mohammed v. Jeppesen, a data plan. So there were close cases and then the court had never taken any of them. But after that, the court took this other case, General Dynamics, which was a defense contractor case. But in it, because it was it, the case was covered in state secrets, the court said very clearly there are two different doctrines that have yep. kind of gone under the name state secrets or state secrets doctrine is what is, what, is a unanimous Justice Scalia opinion. And one of them is a privilege, an evidentiary privilege. That's why you say state secrets privilege. You know, what happens when you win an evidentiary privilege? The evidence is excluded and the case goes on and as though the witness has died or, you know, all those sort of analogies. And they said there's another doctrine, which is when you have contracts to spy or other secret contracts that someone has made with the government, those contracts may not be enforceable in court. Because when you do that, you assume the risk that you're operating in secret. And one thing that means is you're not going to be able to sue if one side to a secret agreement breaks the rules. And what the court said was these are two different doctrines. The evidentiary privilege does not apply here because this is a, it was a defense contractor you know, to make some very secret kind of military equipment. Uh, and, and so the second set of rules applies. That case seemed to cast a lot of doubt on these prior cases in the torture context and the wiretapping context that had um, suggested that dismissal was available. And so, you know, the other thing we said was, look, your own case, you said it. So we're making this argument, which seems very clearly to follow from your most recent state secrets case. Um, but yes, the government had said it wasn't in the question. Um, and you had said earlier, you know, there's a lot of discussion of history um, from the superb brief that Professor Donahue and, and Professor Donahue happens to be a historian and her other area of interest is national security. And she's actually one of the appointed amicus to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So it's kind of a remarkable marrying of interests that made her a, sort of a perfect person to, to write this brief because she just knows so much in both the different areas. But I found it slightly surreal that we were focused so much on one hand on the history and all of this doctrine from a lot of it's from early England, you know, early 1800s England, because um, there's very little U.S. state secrets doctrine in the, in the common law. And then on the other hand, what does the word use mean? Right. What does the word whenever mean? <laughs> what does the word otherwise use is different from use? And to me, the basic problem with their position is that if they are right, then the government has a veto power. It can say national security and your constitutional rights disappear. And all of these remedies that Congress created to stop all these abuses actually are meaningless because the government can always just circumvent them by acting in the name of national security, which, of course, Nixon was doing and the FBI was doing when they surveilled Martin Luther King. They said it was for national security, right? But I also do think it it came through, and you've also alluded to this today, which is the case does raise broader questions about how do you hold the government accountable 
to the law and how do you enforce the law in a world in which, you know, the government has this kind of state secrets privilege in its back pocket? Because in a lot of FISA or foreign intelligence surveillance court surveillance cases, um, people won't know they were surveilled. And so therefore, it's really hard to challenge whether the surveillance procedures are lawful if you don't actually know whether you're being surveilled. Um, and there are also a variety of procedural doctrines that make it hard to challenge the surveillance program if you don't actually know whether you're being surveilled. So there was an attempt to challenge a separate government surveillance program in Clapper versus Amnesty International that the court dismissed because they said, no, you haven't established that it's sufficiently likely that your communications are going to be intercepted. So if not in this case, which is a rare case where people actually know they were being surveilled, you know, how are you going to hold the government accountable to the procedures it is supposed to abide by? Yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's, it's for me, very troubling that even though all the NSA abuses, they would never have come to light and nothing would have changed if not for Edward Snowden, precisely because for the holding in, in Clapper that you just described was unless you already know that you have, that are the victim of a secret program. Even, even though it's highly likely, and it turned out to be true, that of course they were, the, unless you already know it. And so the only way for these cases to even get off the ground is with whistleblowing. Um, in our case, it's, a, it's an unusual form of it, but I think it is a form of whistleblowing. It's an informant yeah. who, you know, perhaps for his own reasons, but has come forward and said, this is what was happening and this is what the FBI was doing. But of course, all the things are equally illegal, even if there is no whistleblower. The same things may have been happening in Michigan or in Dallas or in other places, but the Bay Area, um, uh, we, they were happening in New York because there was uh, that information came to light as well. But you can't sue unless you, you know, this sort of fortuitous accidental thing happens. And that's, that's really a, a, a fundamental defect in the system, uh, in, in my view. So we are probably running short uh, of our window. Um, is there anything else you wanted to cover? Um, I, just, I always think it's important for people to, especially if you're not in California, to understand that this set of issues was a really big deal at the time. Uh, there's actually a great This American Life episode called The Convert, which is about this case. It was it was done long before you know the Supreme Court litigation. Uh, but people in Southern California, in the uh, Muslim communities, still remember this because it was a big deal when they realized that the FBI was lying to them. A lot of people, you know, I sort of feel like, look, a lot of government security, they often don't tell the truth. That's the history of this country and what happens. But that's not the way a lot of people see it. Uh, and it caused a lot of hurt. It really did. Uh, and that's why I think it's, it is really important that um, there be some way for the case to get through and have their day in court. I'm not sure if we're going to get there or not. Obviously, there's no way to know. Um, but but yeah, it was it was a, an issue that was of tremendous personal importance to a lot of people in the community, not just the, these three men either, a whole lot of other people too. Yeah. Well, I'm told this is a court that really cares about religious liberty. Um, so I'm sure they will not require the outright dismissal of a religious discrimination claim. Um, and I will leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Ahilan, for joining us. Um, it was a real pleasure. Um, and thank you for your work on this case. Thank you very much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Eddie Cooper for making our music. And thanks to all of you for listening. Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. 
We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 